Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLomo. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Shannon Reed, an associate professor in criminal justice and criminology at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. She's here with us today to talk with us about white power gangs and youth gangs. Shannon, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. So, Shannon, I will start with a historical question. As our listeners know, I am a historian, so it, I felt like we needed to start there first. So could you talk a little bit, setting the stage for us about the history of gangs, not only in research, but also in the media, and how that's really impacted our broader general understandings of what gangs are and who gang members are? So if we think about the earliest gang studies, those happened in the early 1900s, and probably the most famous is Frederick Thrasher's Gangland, which is in 1923. He put out a map. And if you look at the original gang studies, you have a very diverse group of gangs. So he has Italian gangs, Irish gangs, Black gangs, uh, Polish gangs, right? And so it was a very sort of diverse population. But the key was that these were groups of youth who manage to control space and act independently of sort of the social controls of those neighborhoods. And so when we think about that transformation and how cities have transformed over time, sort of white flight out of cities and um, sort of people getting stuck in different neighborhoods, what we see is that the gangs in a lot of these areas continue despite population overturn. And what the gangs look like might change. So, uh, you know, a really good example is if we think about New York or Chicago and even L.A., we will see how even barrios that have been around for 100 years are now getting gentrified. And we're seeing some shift in who's living in those neighborhoods. But those are some really entrenched gang areas. And so the areas will sort of move a little bit, but that is that space is is very important to these different groups. And so if we think about how they've been covered, you know, for the most part, early gang studies sort of thought of them as youth who would grow out of this stage. So it was a period of time where these youth were involved in delinquency and violence. And then it was expected that most of them would, if they weren't caught up in the early criminal justice system, get jobs and kind of move out, you know, sort of a traditional life course sort of flow. What we see in the research in, you know, more the 70s and 80s is that as the economy shifted and stuff like areas like Detroit or uh, Milwaukee where auto dealer, like auto manufacturers and stuff left, that there wasn't that transition point anymore. So jobs that used to be there that most people would transition to were no longer there. And so then we started to see people in the gang longer than previously. And again, the average time a person's in a gang is a year or two. But as people sort of don't have those transitions anymore, or get caught up in the criminal justice system, that can extend. And then when we saw sort of where the news really comes into play is the, the youth violence of, you know, late 80s, early 90s, where what you saw on the news is especially young black males and putting the drug uh, violence on gang members and 
not that they weren't a part of that, but it, you know, you sort of had this image of what a gang member was, was a young black violent male. And so then when the super predator myth came through and, you know, it sort of built and built and built because every like shows like cops, all those things sort of fed into this image of what people think a gang member looks like. And that image is, you know, there's movies like Boys in the Hood and Menace to Society, which I show in my classes because I think they're very good depictions of sort of how people visualize this. But those sort of pop culture um, images and that, you know, that and then adults and other people seeing it on the news has kind of just led to this continual idea of what we think gang members are. And then, of course, with MS-13 and some of the other Hispanic groups, you know, there's sort of been that added to it as well. But then they get the sense that it's, uh, then you get sort of the anti-immigration piece and things like that, that, um, you know, it's uh, inter, you know, that we have cross-national gangs. And again, we sort of push back and say, you know, you can have family in El Salvador that doesn't make you an international gang. So, you know, it's pieces like that that we've seen that sort of continually create this image of, of who a gang member is. Jen, and that's really helpful, especially thinking about some of the conceptions that are so ingrained both in mainstream media and also just our collective con- assumptions about who is in a gang and shifting that focus a little bit when we're thinking about particularly white power gangs. I'm wondering if the conceptions that you see people bringing to the table are films like American History X or just the visualizations of white power gangs in prisons that you see on television, that you see in various shows. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the real landscape of white power activism. What do these white power gangs really look like? What are some of the hotspots of their activity? What kinds of things do they do? And what are some of the common misconceptions that you've encountered people have about how these groups actually operate? So the white power landscape is really interesting. And I always have to preface my discussion on this with saying, I am talking about the youth. (laughs) So you'll see a lot of, uh, that far right research that focuses on you know the far right movement as a whole right so they'll conglomerate and put together the 14 year old who is part of Hammerskin Nation and the 70 year old who's part of uh National Socialist you know so what we're trying to say what I'm trying to say is like okay I'm just talking about the youth <laughs> and if we talk about them then that is a very particular sort of piece of research. Shannon, sorry to jump in. What is the range that you were for youth? What is that range for a researcher? So it's sort of the, I know I say youth, but it's, uh, it's like the 13 to 24 age range. So it's not young, young, although we've seen even with like Adam Waffen division and some of the base, you know, they're being 14, 15 year olds who are fairly active, but it's more that sort of, you know, like early young adulthood, um, where your cognitive and social behaviors and skills are not, you know, what we would consider fully formed. So, you know, and I think a movie like American History X does get at this in a way that other movies don't, because a lot of the, what we see on TV is, I don't know if you've ever seen the show Hate Thy Neighbor, which I I generally really like. It's on Vice. Um, But a lot of the white power groups um, are just portrayed as sort of, stupid, right? Like, 
Um, and even skinheads, like when we talk about skinheads, you know, even you know, Milo Yiannopoulos and those who said, oh, we're not the skinheads of old. We're not like the dumb meathead. So there's always sort of been this brush off of them as being sort of ignorant. They just want to fight like, and, you know, sort of too stupid to concern ourselves with, which is not, <laughs> you know, it's like, we can't, we can't sort of say black gang members and Hispanic gang members are somehow pl- criminally savvy and white gang members are too stupid to care about. Right. Like, and so I think when we think about what this looks, looks like and where these people are, is I think the image is that they're kind of in the middle of nowhere, right? When you go to, you know, when you drive outside of Charlotte, you know, 20, 30 minutes, it gets very sort of rural. And that's where these groups are at, right? They're kind of like, they're not a city problem. But when we actually talk to youth and look at where we're seeing reports of, you know, activity, they are in cities, and they're right around cities. So it has more to do with population centers and that you need sort of enough people to maintain gangs. And this is true when we talk about rural gangs, right? So you need population. You can't have a, a gang in the true sense of it lasts when people leave in very rural areas. So the idea that they're sort of like elsewhere and just idiot kids and rednecks or whatever, you know, sort of you want to call them doesn't line up with sort of how we see them and where we see them. So, you know, especially in cities where there is a lot of sort of turnover in population, we sort of have a theory we call minority group threat, where as populations change, white youth and white individuals start to feel, be fearful. And so they sort of come together and these groups can form there. But having grown up in the punk scene, um, that's where I first saw skinheads, both racist and non-racist skinheads. And that's sort of what got me interested in this. But they were at, they were in Philly, right? We're in Philly, we're in New York City, we're in Hartford, they're in cities. And so it's, again, not this sort of outside problem. It's a city problem. It's a community problem. And I think I'll answer like half of what you asked. <laughs> no, no, no. And it's really helpful to think about not just the misconceptions about how these groups operate, but where these groups are. I would say that I definitely had that misconception that much of the youth white power gang activism was in sort of smaller rural areas. And I think sometimes those stereotypes really miss the hotbeds of activism and recruitment that happen in in more urban areas as well. And I think that gets back to your original point about our historical conceptions about gangs and gang activity and what constitutes gang activity. So keeping that thread about gang activity and the way that that intersects, particularly with the criminal justice system, how has a history of white supremacy really impacted how white power or alt-right gangs have been treated? So that's a really important question. And it really gets to sort of the roots of uh, sort of what we refer to as white supremacy and policing as a term that's um, been used again more recently, but has been around. And, you know, I think a lot of what we are seeing is because we have put a lot of, and this is true for gang researchers and, and other scholars, where we have also been dismissive of these groups, um, a lot of it around the ideology, and I can talk about why that shouldn't be a deal breaker. <laughs> um, but what you see is that they sort of fall into kind of more of a subculture it, uh, category. So if you are 
dress like a skin um, or wearing Proud Boys clothes or whatever it is that's sort of, you know, uh, a white power uniform, depending on where you're at, you know, and you get stopped by the police for vandalism or, you know, fighting or things like that. It sort of gets written off as a youthful indiscretion, um, a phase, right? So this idea as if, uh, you know, you're a goth or punk or... I don't, (laughs) hippie, right? Like, um, you know, and it's like, oh, that's, you know, that's that kid's phase. They'll grow out of this. They just think they're cool or whatever. So it gets dismissed as kind of, you know, a temporary status. Whereas if you're look like a more traditional gang member, even to the point where I've been on, you know, defense attorneys, working with defense attorneys about like, oh, we saw this kid, he's dressed to head to toe in red. He must be a gang member. And you're like, no gang member wears that anymore. It's so, you know, and I can Google frat, you know, sorority girls dressed as gang. Member. Like that, that means nothing, but that label follows you forever. Right. So you're getting gang enhancements. You're getting field interview cards taken on you. If you enter the criminal justice system, that label is put on you. So somehow when you're a minority or, or even white part of a traditional gang, you know, that label is a serious label. Whereas if you're part of more of a, of a white power gang, then that's kind of a youthful indiscretion. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the fact that there is not a ton of pushback about some of those beliefs within policing, right? So we've seen this, we've seen police officers with three percenters, flags and standing and protecting proud boys and showing up at rallies um differentially depending if it's black lives matter or if it's you know a skinhead rally um and so you know those things follow through and as we think about you know why that is you know if if you if you're a, a criminal justice entity that holds some of those beliefs then you are not going to intervene the same way that you would um, against somebody who you feel like is, you know, breaking the social code in the same way. Or that if you genuinely think that, you know, minorities or immigrants or whatever are inherently bad, then you're going to treat them that way. That all that discretion that you have is being sort of poured into those decisions about who to arrest, who not to arrest, um, who gets, you know, a warning, who just gets sent home, things like that. Shannon, that's incredibly helpful. And I think it also gets a, an idea that we've discussed in other forms on the podcast, which is how in many cases, the extreme white supremacy or the extreme misogyny that you see on the far right or in these groups is, you know, it is just an extreme form of things that occur in sort of mainstream interactions, as you pointed out, between you know how the criminal justice system treats black kids and brown kids is very different than it treats white kids. And just what is written off as an indiscretion or what is written off as it's just a phase or it was just boys being boys or just youths just acting out. It is, in many cases, when you were talking about it, it made me think of this is a really just an extreme encapsulation of dynamics that already exist within the criminal justice system in the United States. And I wanted to go back to a point that you mentioned earlier about your focus on youth. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about if there are differences in how we think about white supremacist gangs, if they're youth versus their adults, and why is that distinction important? And what kinds of differences do we see in these different types of gangs? You know, for me, the reason I focus on the youth is that they are, I'll say this will sound bad, but the most important to intervene with, you know, they still have a lot of, uh, 
life decisions and life um, sort of turning points that if we can intervene earlier, as we do with gang members, um, that we can keep them out of the criminal justice system and we can sort of keep them moving forward pro-socially. And so, but they're also the more prone to violence, right? So that's your high crime prone age group uh, with lower (laughs) self-control. And so they're the ones pushing a lot of the criminality, um, but they're also the ones who I've seen, you know, are the more easily intervenable. And we've seen from skinhead research and other, you know, sort of white gang research is that, um, you know, they'll flip flop. So you'll have sharps who then go racist, who go back kind of depending on what the scene looks like. Um, maybe who's selling better drugs, right? So, you know, economically, socially, which one's better. So there isn't, you know, an adherence to ideology that you have to overcome as much with the younger population. And, you know, when I talked to, there was a Peckerwood who was incarcerated in California in the youth facility. And when we asked what they do, you know, he said all the same things that every other gang member says, which is we hang out, we drink, we pick up girls. And then the only addition they add is they do Hitler stuff. And (laughs) that was it. So then you say, what's Hitler stuff, right? And they're like, oh, well, you know, we like tag things or we, you know, so it's, it's not a sense of like, I adhere to uh, or really understand the ideology, but rather I use the ideology as a way to be seen. So if we think about the costume of white power, if you're young, that is your identity. And if you dress like a a gang member, a traditional gang member, you're going to potentially just get laughed at, right? No one takes you seriously. Even back in the day, like, you know, everybody had those kids who thought they were black, you know, like, and you got laughed at. There's nothing um, anti-authority about that, right? You just sort of look like a joke. And, you know, we've seen a number of, especially in Europe, where you know, they, they adopt all these signs and symbols of white power, but it's really for intimidation purposes, right? Like if I see a kid with a swastika on their jacket, that might make me go, Oh, you know, that's something to think about. Whereas if I see them wearing, you know, a red hat, what is that? That doesn't mean it, right? There's no sort of interpersonal like concern there. So those signs and symbols get adopted, not because there's a true belief in the ideology, but rather it's what sets you apart. It creates that in-group, out-group. That is really important. So, you know, we focus on the youth for a lot of that reason because they are the most crime-prone, because, you know, they're generally still in school and therefore accessible for interventions. And I think, you know, when we talk about the adults, it's not that the adults don't have the potential for, you know violence and criminality and, you know, sort of serious, but A, they tend to only get tracked once they've hit prison. So it's, I don't want to say it's too late, but you're further along in the criminal justice system by the time you sort of come under surveillance. But B, you have had time to uh, set yourself up, <laughs> right? So it's to me intervening on a forty-year-old who has a family and has, you know, is raising their children with some of this ideology. That's a much different intervention than, you know, say a sixteen-year-old who is going to punk shows and sort of finds his group and gets into it because it seems interesting or cool and offers, 
you know, excitement and all those things youth want. I think that's just a different intervention. And so that's why we kind of slice it because I think what we've seen works for younger people is not necessarily going to be what works for an older person. And Shannon, do you find that what draws these youths into these gangs is the same whether they find it uh, before they're perhaps in the juvenile correction system or often do they find these groups after they've already been incarcerated and as you've said you know they're looking for some kind of belonging as they're making their way through this you know very isolating system yeah so most of the youth we've talked to i've talked to um it's before they get into a correctional system and a lot of them you know like in california for example if you come in with a gang membership which is about 75% 75% of them come in with a gang membership. Um, it's really high. <laughs> wow, that's very high, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's really high. Um, you automatically get aligned with the prison gang. So, and it's a one-to-one. So, you know, but when we talk to youth, they don't consider themselves like uh, anything other than their street gang. So it might be that they form numbers because there's just not a lot of white kids or not a lot of black kids. And so you kind of, if you might be from different sets of, from the same neighborhood or different neighborhoods, so you join together based on race. So prison has to be, is generally much more race-based, but to them, what's important to them is their street gang because the majority of them are going to go home. So for those who aren't going to go home, for those who are going to transfer to adult prison, then the prison gang scene becomes a little more important. But again, I think that's where we treat white gangs differently because all of a sudden we have people in Aryan Brotherhood and, you know, like I have a, I have trouble believing that somebody gets arrested, gets incarcerated, goes to prison and suddenly is okay with (laughs) being part of the Aryan Brotherhood of Texas or something like, so we are good at saying this kid was in here and then they go to prison or jail and they're, you know, joining a prison gang here. But magically the white people had no street affiliation show to prison and are totally kosher getting a swastika tattooed on them. So you're like, I, we're, we're missing something for this group because they still, and then they go back out. Right. So Aryan Brotherhood of Texas is a really good example or pen one of there being violence in neighborhoods and against correctional officers. So they're taking it back out with them potentially, but why are we not figuring out who's bringing it in? There's sort of a sense that for some reason, white gang members just happen to join in prison. Whereas other groups, it's kind of a mix. Mm. And Shannon, does some of that come from, you mentioned a little bit about how these groups are actually recorded and are, and how are white power groups actually systematically recorded in correctional systems? And is that different than perhaps how other gangs are tracked? So when you come in to a correctional facility, it's actually much more rigorous. So everybody gets the same, um, sort of intake form. And so people self-report. So what happens is if you self-report, that is like an automatic one-to-one. So if you say I'm part of X, they say, okay, you're part of X and I put you in the database. Other ways, and again, these are, you know, I'm not saying these are good ways. (laughs) They are simply the ways they do it. Is you have to kind of hit some other benchmarks. So if you have tattoos, certain tattoos, if you have, um, you know, a law enforcement agency that has already flagged you, if you have a confidential informant who says you're a gang member, or if you, you know, you do something in the facility that's gang involved. But what's tricky for um, that is that 
we, on the law enforcement side, you see that they are overly willing to, you know, track in their gang databases, black and brown gang members. And so those individuals will already have that first flag, that first check when they enter a facility. So the bar is much lower for them than it is for others. And so, and we've seen it in Portland with their gang database issues of it totally being disproportionate to the population. LAPD is coming under fire for their gang database of having infants in there and hundred year olds in there. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and so because they don't audit it and if there's any auditing, it's internal. So, and they often stop people a lot because they want to be able to get gang enhancements. So one person will have 50 field interview cards on them because they're purposefully trying to make you or get you to say, yes, I'm still in the gang. No, or they're with so-and-so who's in the gang. And so when they go to court, you say, is this person a member of a gang? The person says no. And then the officer says, hey, look, I interviewed them two weeks ago and they're with so-and-so. So they're lying. But for white youth, since they're not getting picked up in the gang databases, and again, I'm not saying gang databases are the answer, but that's what we're using, is that it's not until they sort of hit that first interview in a, in a prison setting that somebody's taking what they're saying seriously. So that's why we sort of see for them um, this like, okay, they self-reported, and now we see their tattoos, and now we're keeping track. Whereas for other groups, they've already been keeping track since you know early police contact or even schools right schools can we have school resource officers they report gang activity you know so we have a much earlier tracking system for other groups that the white gang members seem to sort of fly under the radar for Mm. shannon that's incredibly helpful and with the time that we have left i want to shift to something you mentioned earlier about why it's you study youth gangs and just this a greater ability to intervene at this stage versus the adult gangs. And one of the big concerns that I've seen recently and I've encountered from people is concerns about children being radicalized and joining these kinds of groups. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about the kind of interventions that you've seen or things that seem to be successful or just the kind of programs that are being implemented now to try and combat the influx of kids really consuming this kind of far right material, whether it's online or just in their communities? So I'm (laughs) going to say something that's probably going to get me in trouble um, because I am not anti-de-radicalization, but I think the focus on de-radicalization for this age group is an overemphasis on how much the material matters versus how much the peer group matters. So, you know, I think what, and I can say for my own son, he's on TikTok and I listen and I'm like, delete, like, (laughs) you know, cause you'll hear like, he's watching a video. We're done. I know. So, you know, he's watching a video on, you know, making slime. And then I hear the narrative in the background and I'm like, okay, this is not kosher. So, you know, there's a lot of exposure, but unless there is a peer group attachment to it, I think for the vast majority of youth, that is not as important. So, you know, it's not that they won't take it and say, hey, that's interesting and Google it and then find a forum where they meet people and those people support it. But it's for young people, like 
friends and that shift from family being the focus to friends being the focus in your identity creation is key to this age group. So we can combat, you know, sort of saying, okay, you know, with diversity training and other sorts of de-radicalization programs, like those are great. And those can be very helpful in sort of beating bias, but the group is what matters. So they could shift to sharps, right? So it's, you know, do we care about the group dynamics or do we care about them saying they do Hitler stuff? And to me, it's less that they say they do Hitler stuff and more the fact that they are committing violence and stealing and selling drugs and stuff that's going to get them entrenched in the criminal justice system. And for that to happen, you need to target the group because we've seen that when youth join those groups, their criminality is exponentially higher than if they were just surrounded by other delinquent youth. So the, the, the group dynamic is so important and it's, it's hard to disrupt if you're very focused on the individual and what the individual is being exposed to. So, you know, I think that those messages are important just generally for everybody. But if we think about programs like great, which is the gang resistance education and training program, or you think about some of the community programs that are out there. Because if we have youth that we know are missing, like that have these risk factors across, whether you're black, brown, Asian, white, whatever, gang members have a certain set of risk factors, whether no matter their race. And so we still need to target those risk factors. And those risk factors are less focused on ideology because we don't go after MS-13 and say, you know what you need is let's focus less on Salvadorian pride and more on, <laughs> you know, I mean, like we let other ideologies go by Latin Kings has, you know, so our, I think our willingness to focus so much on the ideology is again, giving people an out for their behavior. And so if we focus too much on that, I think we miss the forest for the trees. And so that's why you know, I think some of the gang programs that are out there that really focus on uh, pro-social peer building and community building um, are going to have a larger overall impact. Fantastic. Shannon, that is a great note for us to end on. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. I wanted to ask if there's, for our listeners, if they want to read more of your work, if they want to hear more from you, are you online? Are there ways for them to just connect with the kinds of things that you're writing and talking about? Sure. So I am on Twitter. <laughs> it's morning Shannon, morning like dead morning. Um, and but I'm also on like ResearchGate. If people are on that, we have the book uh, All Right Gangs, A Hazy Shade of White. But yeah, or my you know my university email is shannonreed33 at uncc.edu. If people want to reach out, I'm always happy to talk to people. Um, my phone's disconnected because of all the <laughs> scary phone calls I get, but uh, yeah. I'll answer No one needs email. to be calling our phones. <laughs> Listen, if you want to connect with us, we love social media and email. Yeah, yeah. social media is great. Um, but yeah, so if people want to reach out, I'm, I'm more than happy to chat. And I love hearing what people are working on and doing in this, this area. So thanks so much for joining us, Shannon. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. This has been another episode of Right Rising. We'll see you all next time. Mm-hmm.